and welcome back to Season 2, Episode 11 of the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for your life and mission. And I am Aaron Santemeyer, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to sit down with Pastor David Wigington, um, author of God of the Longview, Trusting a Timeless God in a Hurried World. Many of you know Pastor David, um, at least in East Africa. We've got to see him a few times as he's come out to visit and encourage missionaries. Many of you know he has a heart for missions um, and encourage, loves to encourage missionaries and invest in missionaries. And um, so it was just natural to reach out to him um, for the podcast. And uh, as I read the book once again um, on a flight back from the United States, it was just an encouragement for me. And um, just wanted to see if he'd be willing to just to discuss a little bit deeper about the book and see some um, insight that he would have for us. And so we have a great, valuable conversation, and I know you'll learn from him once again. Um, You'll be encouraged and you'll be challenged. At least I was challenged um, to get my uh, mind off the instantaneous, but to trust the God of the long view. And where my trust is, is in God and not what I'm seeing necessarily right in front of me. And uh, just an encouraging word, um, just an encouraging word for anyone who will listen. do want to encourage you if you have not yet subscribed to the podcast, I would encourage you to do that. I know the podcasts that I subscribe to are the ones that I listen to, and are those ones that get on my phone, and then I have my playlist already and set for on Monday morning. And I would encourage you to do that. Also, um, if you have any questions um, for Back Channel with Foth, that's where I sit down with um, Dick Foth and um, listeners sending questions, and we get to answer one or two of those. I give share those with Dick, and Dick gives us some wise um, answers to those, and just a, a joy to get to spend time with Dick and to learn from him. do want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, which will be Wes and Peggy Reed, Collaborators in Life and in Mission. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Well, greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here today with a friend of, of Africa and a friend of missionaries around the world, Pastor David Wigington. David, it's so great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Could you go ahead and just introduce yourself, um, Pastor David, for those that um, most missionaries know who you are, but there's other people that listen in that that, that are not missionaries. So will you just go ahead and just take a few minutes and just share um, about yourself? Yeah, so my seat on the bus in the uh, this big kingdom bus that we're on is uh, I'm a pastor in Bloomington, Indiana. We pioneered the church here 24 years ago, uh, March the 9th of 1997. And uh, we pioneered with just a heart for missions and just uh, we in our charter, we determined we were going to give a third of every dollar that came into the church to missions. And so um, we were determined even when we weren't a medium or even large church, we determined to try to give like a large church. And so um, we've tried to be generous with any resources that God's brought our way. And and so we've, uh, we've been in missions conversations now for two and a half decades as a church and and uh, just excited to be a part all around the world and and with with projects, with boots on the ground missionaries. And so just my heart to be involved in and loving our missionaries. Well, just a quick question, where your love for missions, did that begin as a is a is a, a young a young man? Did that begin in school? Where is there where's the kind of the origin story of your love for missions? You know, um I was a pastor's kid growing up. And so, you know, I have the same stories of every other pastor's kids of, of, of hearing missionaries come through and, and watching their slides, you know, back in the day, they weren't videos and, uh, or, you know, projectors, it was just the old slides. And so I, I have those stories, but really for me, probably my, my heart for missions and my, my missiology came, come, comes from 
two significant events as a, a teenager. When I was 17 years old, uh, my sister had just graduated from high school and my parents took us to India. And we got to spend some time in Calcutta with Hulda Buntain and, and got to spend some time with some of our missionaries on the ground in India. I was going into my senior year in high school. And so seeing the rest of the world kind of firsthand, that was obviously impactful as, as any first time missions trip is for, for most people. It's the first time I'd really been overseas. I'd been out of the country, but this first time I'd really been, you know, significantly out of the United States and out of certainly the Western world. And so that was, that was very formative for me. And then the second and probably most impactful thing happened two years later when I was a, uh, a freshman at Southeastern and I had Beth Grant as my missions, uh, my missions teacher. Um, everybody was required to take a missions class and she just happened to be the missionary in residence that year. And so three days a week, I went in and learned from Beth Grant and, and some of the most powerful, impactful times and really gave me, I think, a heart for missions, but a, but a solid base of missiology to, to approach missions from. And, and so I still, there's still many times I lean back into some of the things that I learned from Beth and, and I've, I've been privileged the last four or five years to work with David and Beth very closely. And they've become, uh, they're, they're heroes of mine, but they've become just very close personal friends. And, uh, but, uh, that is one of the most formative moments in my in my ministry, not just for wow. missions, but just in my ministry in general was was sitting under Beth Grant's ministry and teaching. Awesome. Awesome. I didn't know you were a graduate of Southeastern. Me too. So um, it's a uh, pretty cool. So uh, my uh, I got to sit out a, a professor was named Rod, Dr. Rodney White. And um, yep. he really spoke into my life and uh, married Heather and I and um, greatly impacted our, our understanding of missions and our theology of missions and all the way around. Dr. Brother and Sister White both did. So, yeah, I, I know the whites very well. Good deal. Hey, I just recently read your book, um, The God of the Long View, Trusting a Timeless God in a Hurried World. And wow, did it resonate with me and my heart and mind, especially in the current world we live in today. Um, and, you know, in that book, you share that God um, chooses to bring glory to himself in, in other ways than the, the instantaneous. Could you unpack that thought for me? Because that's that really jumped out and um, really made me reflect on my life as a missionary and as I um, serve and try to be a salt and light in the world. Sure. Well, if I can just back up just a little bit and kind of tell maybe an origin story for the book, because it actually involves uh, one of our Africa House missionaries and and missions, the just the origins of the book itself. I oversee and help help with a group called BAM in the U.S. that raises money for businesses' missions. And I had had a friend, Rod Loy, scheduled to come and speak at a fundraising event in New York City. And we were supposed to raise about a million and a half dollars on a Tuesday. And on Friday, he called me and said, hey, I've got a death on my staff. I'm not going to be able to come. And I said, OK, well, I guess I'll have to speak. I'll have to raise the money. And, and I said, that's fine. Just send me your notes and I'll work on them and kind of make them my own. And, and I, I've done that before. Rod and I trade notes, notes back and forth. And, and he said, oh, well, you can't do that. He said, these my story, my my talk was full of personal stories. He said, there's just yeah. no way that you could make them your own. And so I walked into my office on that Saturday morning, essentially 72 hours out, knowing that I needed to raise a million and a half dollars and had nothing to say. And I came wow. across this, uh, this prayer, really kind of a poem called the God of the long view. And, and it really just resonated with me, struck me. And so I started to, started to write throughout that Saturday about this idea of God of the long view. And so how often in missions, 
that we have to take a long view that all of the easy places are reached and now yeah. we're going to the hard places and 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 really tilling some difficult soil that you know I have missionary friends who've worked for a decade and and haven't seen their first convert and so yeah. um really began to resonate with me and so I, I I gave the talk that Tuesday we were able to raise the money and and after that session two people walked up to me one of them was Greg Beggs one of the uh, was a another pastor and both of them said almost word for word the same thing they said hey Wiggs you should write a book about that idea of God of the long view hmm. and uh, that was in November and I was scheduled for a right uh, left elbow surgery, left lateral collateral ligament surgery on December the 7th of that, that year, just about three weeks later. And I thought, you know, my elbow's not hurting that bad. I think I could survive without it, but I'd cleared my schedule for the whole month of December. So I called my surgeon and canceled the surgery and walked into my office on December the 8th and uh, put a sign on my door that I was writing to leave me alone. And uh, eight days later, the manuscript for wow. God of the Longview emerged. And I say that not to brag, hey, I wrote a book in eight days because nobody writes a book in eight days. Right. I say that to, to say I, I really think it was that it was just in me that yeah. that it was just one of those things that the that God had placed in me, and and I really felt like when I was writing it, I was writing it for our missionary family hmm. um, as an encouragement. And and so when when I had early readers look at the manuscript and they said, "Who's your audience?" and I and I said, "Well, missionaries," and they're like, "Well, that's too narrow of an audience to write a book for," and I said, "Well, that's what that's who it's for." You know, I wrote yeah. it for our missionaries, and so. <laughs> Um, but it's rather fascinating. The, the books kind of had two life cycles, right? So the first year we, we, we bought and distributed copies to a lot of our missionary family and, and heard from just dozens of countries around the world, missionaries who had read it. And then when the pandemic hit, it, it sort of had this new life with pastors yeah. because pastors in the States were all of a sudden being faced with this idea that I can't get immediate results. I can't, hmm. I can't even put a single person in my pew on Sunday, let alone fill my pews. And so pastors had to really begin to rethink this idea of non-instantaneous results. And so in terms of just unpacking that, you know, we, we live in, it's, it's no secret. We live in such a microwave FedEx overnight delivery. You know, I got mm. irritated two days ago because I had overnighted something to somebody and it took two whole days to get to them, you know, and, <laughs> and, and we get irritated with those things because we are such an instantaneous culture. Yeah. And, and I, I, as I look at the scriptures as Pentecostals, we believe in the supernatural and we believe in God doing miraculous things. But the reality is the scriptures are a story of God doing something over millennia you know, yeah. of God working over centuries and, and the, 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 you know, the, the Heil's Geschichte, the salvation history of, mm. uh, of God throughout the old Testament into, into the new Testament and the gospels is something that just, it stretches on and on and on. And yet we think God's going to do his story in our lives in 30 seconds because we That's pressed good. the popcorn, button, you know? That's and good. so it's really important I think not just for missionaries, but for everybody to understand that God is a God of the long view. Yes, he mm. can do things instantaneously. Yes, he can miraculously heal in the moment. We believe that. We we practice that. We preach that. But our lives should have a trajectory to understand that we're not, we're we're expecting and believing for a miracle, but we're also going to be patient and and in enduring for the long haul and know that what God starts in us today, he may not finish for a decade or two hmm. or more. Hmm. 
and that perspective, it's, uh, especially as you, yeah, in the world we live in and honestly coming for, you know, I remember I arrived in Burkina Faso and, um, I was expecting instantaneous and, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. nothing other than, uh, yeah, my realization that I didn't know what I was doing. That was instantaneous. But other than that, that was about all that the, the revelation that I had during that time. But, um, it is, uh, it's hard I'll speak for me. I can't speak for my whole generation, but for my generation, I think it really is hard to understand. Um, and as a Pentecostal, as you hit on that, you know, we obviously believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that in the miraculous. And at the same time, as you pointed out, God, when we read the Bible, God definitely has a plan and um, he is the God of the, the long view. And uh seeing how we fit. And that kind of segues into the next question in the book, you talk about connecting dots and, um, you know, I know many of our missionaries, some have been um, uh, been in quarantine. They've been uh, hauled up in an apartment or in a house, not been able to go out and do the ministry that they felt called to. And um, some of them are struggling at this point to try to connect it, as you share in the book of just connecting all those dots. Can you share just some words of encouragement for someone that is in a place where they're trying to think, how do I connect all these dots in the situation I'm in? Sure, sure. Well, I think... The thing for me is when we're living it, it is so difficult to connect those dots. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I use in the book, I use the illustration of, you know, the connect the dots pictures that we all did as kids. And, you know, you look at a page of dots and you, you know, until you get it three fourths formed, usually you, you don't know what you're drawing. Yeah. Um, but I, I lived this a few years ago. I'm a Midwestern boy. And so we, we have crazy things in the Midwest, like corn mazes in the fall. And uh, a corn maze, if you don't know, is where they have a, a big field of corn. And right before they harvest it, they go and they carve a maze out in the, the corn maze. And you can go and you can kind of get lost in the maze and try to find your, your way from the, from the beginning to the end. And there's false ends. And, you know, kind of like any other maze, there's places you can get lost and circled around. And, and I went with the kids several years ago. We went to this one in Southern Indiana and, and we went through it. And it's some of the most miserable time of my life. I'm not a fan <laughs> of corn mazes. Um, and, uh, but we went through it and the whole time that you're there, all you see is six foot, seven foot tall walls of corn mm. stalks because you're just literally walking a path that's been, you know, mowed out of this cornfield before they harvest it. And I mean, we spent an hour in this thing working our way around and, and I, I it was, it was not a memorable experience in any sense. It was more of a miserable experience than it was a memorable experience. <laughs> and, and I, because I didn't have any context, it was like, I, okay, well, we went through a maze and the next hmm. day um, on the front page of the paper, there was an article about this farm that we had gone to uh, They're all, all of their fall celebrations and all that. And there was an aerial view of this corn maze hmm. that, that we had been through and in the field, it spelled out happy Thanksgiving. Wow. And so we had walked through this, this whole script that said, happy Thanksgiving. Well, when I was in it, I had no yeah. clue. I mean, it was yeah. just, it was six foot tall walls of corn stalks, you know, yeah. and they all, every corner, every turn looked the same. Every dead end was, was just as frustrating. And yeah. yet the perspective was, wow, that's kind of cool. You know, you yeah. see what, what, what it was. And I say that to say, so often when we're living it, every dead mm. end seems the same. Every, every day we look up and we seem like we're staring at the same wall. Um, but the, the connecting the dots part of it requires some perspective and, yeah. and some zooming out and, and some 30,000 foot views of understanding that, yeah, in this moment, you may not feel like from yesterday to today, you made much progress hmm. and you may be staring at the same six foot wall you were staring at yesterday. And you may feel like I'm going to be looking at this same wall tomorrow and next month and the month after that. 
But when we zoom out and we have the benefit of perspective, we understand God really is working, that, that, yeah. that we have that promise that he's going to yeah. continue to work through us and in us and that all things do work together for our good. Yeah. And, and so it, it can be so frustrating because we're so wired for, again, the instant results and the, and the instant gratification and, and the instant recognition. Hmm. And, and a lot of that doesn't come when you keep hitting those same dead ends. But when you, when you have that benefit of perspective and, and I, I'll just, by way of encouragement, I'll just, I'll tell you the things that have been said to encourage me. I can't tell you the number of messages I've gotten in the last two years plus since we published the book, um, of missionaries who said, you know, I've been a missionary for 30 years. Hmm. I've been a missionary for 40 years. And really, until you mentioned that we need to step back and take perspective, I never really realized all that God had done Hmm. and all that, you know, and so, so that was an encouragement to me of like, Hey, say, thanks for, thanks for writing the book. But, but man, I just want to encourage you God is working. I see it around the world from the perspective of a a pastor who lives thousands of miles away, perhaps. I, I see God working. I see what he's doing in, in pockets around the world, even in the difficult places. God is beginning to pour out his spirit and, and people who have worked for years and, and even decades are beginning to see fruit for their labors. And so just keep keep knocking your head against those dead ends, keep staring at that same six foot tall wall of corn stalks. And eventually you're going to wake up one day, you're going to see the picture. Oh, wow. That that really did mean something. What I was going through really meant something because that's what we want, right? We want meaning in, we want meaning in context to know that what we're going through actually means something. And I want to encourage you today. It does. You may not see the picture on the front page of the paper, but at some point you're going to look back and it it is all going to be put into context and you're going to realize it did mean something. What you were going through was worth something. It's a good word and a very encouraging word. You know, in that, and as I read through your book, you talk um, in the process of, of connecting the dots, you share about the power of choice. And um, the choices that we make when it comes to, you just shared about perspective. Can you go a little bit deeper on the power of the choices we're making and how that affects the, our, you know, the long view, our view, the view, long view, and then also our perspective each and every day? Sure, sure. Um, so the the part of the book when I really talk about choices, um, I share a story of actually I was in in Istanbul, Turkey for our Live Dead Elder Board meeting a couple of years ago. It happened in between the time that I spoke about the God of the Long View in New York City and the time that I wrote the book. So it all happened in that little three week span and all part of again God just putting those pieces together. And we had an extra half day, and so uh, uh, Greg Beggs and Ron Maddox and I uh, went to tour the Hagia Sophia. It's supposed to be the most beautiful church in the world. It was a church and then it was a mosque and then it's been converted into a museum and now they've actually opened it back up as a mosque. But we were there in that time period when it was a museum and we we hired a little guide. His name was Omar and he took us through and and showed us uh, showed us the Hagia Sophia. And you know, and it's beautiful. There's places where they're uncovering these ancient mosaics and that have been plastered over because it had been turned into a mosque. So some beautiful gold mosaics and places where they tried to cover the cross and it's bled through the mosaic and you can still see the cross uh, underneath the, the plaster and, and uh, you know, all of these things. It, it's beautiful. I'm, I've been in a lot of old churches and it, it would, you know, no offense to the Hagia Sophia, it would look like a lot of the old ancient cathedrals that you've probably been in or toured around the world. 
but the the tour guide pointed out the floors. He said, you notice the floors and the floors were these beautiful marble floors. They were clearly old. They were clearly original because you could just see how they'd been worn. Hmm. You know, the paths where people had walked had worn into the marble over the centuries. And he said, those are original all around the building. They're, they're original. And I did notice uh, that the way the marble floors were laid, they were lay, laid in these large panels, but they were laid in such a way that as they were jointed together the grain of the marble connected so it was like mm. they sort of sandwiched them together from the same piece of marble so that the grain stretched out across the length of the room and he said uh, how do you think they cut those now knowing that this building was built you know in the the fourth century fifth century i thought well i'm, I'm assuming not from you know a, a dewalt you know power right. saw <laughs> um, but i thought I mean, surely they had saws back then i'm not i'm not a you know i'm not a building guy but i'm like surely right. they had saws back then i you right. know it's not the you know caveman they surely had tools and so i saw well, a saw and he said no he said they couldn't use saws because the vibration from the teeth of the saws they were trying to they were trying to slice these layers of marble so thin that the vibrations would cause them to break before they could mm. cut off an entire panel and so he said they use silk hmm. and i said excuse me and he said well they used silk and he said well not just silk he said they use silk a little strand of silkworm silk and then sand and a little bit of olive oil. And so they would put a little bit of olive oil for lubrication, a little bit of sand for friction. And they would take this, this silkworm wow. silk and they would work back and forth on this giant slab of marble. And it would literally take over a year for a craftsman to slice one slice of marble. And they've got these literally hundreds of craftsmen working on it, wow. but the floor itself took decades. And, and so this, I, I tell that story in the book to say this, like you can sit there if that's your job every day, sawing back and forth on marble with a yeah. silkworm silk <laughs> and sand and, 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 and olive oil and go, man, I'm not making any progress. Like they would literally make millimeters of progress every day. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I don't I, I kind of, can you imagine going to the Thanksgiving, you know, family dinner and go, what do you do for a living? Well, I saw marble with silkworm silk. Well, how many did you cut today? Well, I didn't cut any today. Matter of fact, I haven't cut any in the last year, but I'm about to finish my first one, you know? And, uh, and so you have a choice if that's yeah. your, if that's your, your seat on the bus, you have a choice. You can be miserable and go, man, my life is a, is a drudgery. I, I don't get anything done. I'm not accomplishing anything. My life is nothing. Or you can look up hmm. and you can look around and you can go, I get to be a part of building the most beautiful church in the history of humanity. Yeah. And so really at that point, it becomes a, a decision of, do I feel sorry for myself or do I trust the architect? Hmm. And do I trust that he's got a plan and that what I'm doing right now fits into his plan? Yeah. And, and ultimately that's the decision I would hope that those craftsmen made because I was appreciating their marble floors, you know, 1500 years later, yeah. I was appreciating the work that they did and the, the mastery of their, their craft. But so often I think we make a different choice, you know, mm -hmm. so often I think we do feel sorry for ourselves or we take it out on the people around us, you know, when, when we're not getting the results that we, that we think we deserve for our work. And, and I, I think we really need to get back to trusting the architect that to yeah. believe that God really does have a plan and that he's going to work his plan. And that some days our part might seem monotonous. It might seem like we're not making very fast progress. And I mean, just imagine taking a year to cut one piece of marble. 
Yeah. You know, and, and <laughs> I, I wonder, I don't think I have the patience for that. I don't know if you do, Aaron, but no, I, I don't, I don't no. know if I have the patience for that, but the reality is, as I said, all the, all the easy places are reached. Yeah. We're working in the hard places. And so we've got a lot of missionary workers cutting marble with silkworm right now. Yeah. We've got a lot of missionary workers that are doing slow, difficult work and not seeing a lot of results, but it's, it's time to trust the architect and believe that he is in control, that he has a plan and that we're building something much more beautiful than an old building. We're That's building good. his kingdom. And, and there's something powerful and beautiful about trusting the architect of the kingdom. You do a phenomenal job with illustrations. I, you know, I, when I read books, I, the illustrations that you shared through the book, I mean, honestly, one of those you could have did a one illustration, you could have wrote a whole book around, but each chapter you have those illustrations and that's what I remember. And um, so it's, uh, and, but what it does is it allows those points to resonate in my heart and mind. So as I see churches and see old churches, um, it brings me back to the stories sure. and the illustration. So phenomenal, phenomenal way to communicate. You know, one of the things I think missionaries and um, at times, my, me, even myself, um, I feel a little bit pressure. And I, I know I'm asking you as a pastor, and I know you love missionaries and love missions. Sometimes missionaries feel pressure to put results in their newsletter. Um, and when they do, they're itinerating to, to share results. As a pastor, um, do you think that that pressure to have results is real for a missionary? Or do you think that's something that we would, that we, we take on ourselves? That's kind of question number one on that one. Well, it's probably both. And I I think there are a lot of American pastors who don't understand that the, the easy places are reached. Hmm. I, I think there are a lot of American pastors who are still impressed by large crusades and things like that, that we know missiologically you know, aren't going to work or can't be done in some places. And even in the places where they can be, aren't super effective. And, and, but I do think that 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 pressure is probably real in some sense, because I think there are probably some pastors who, who are impressed by numbers. Um, I do think there's probably a bit of it that's self-imposed because we all feel that pressure to perform. We all feel that pressure to deliver, especially when we work in a vocation where, essentially someone else is, you know, is putting the bill for our work. I think yeah. we, we feel that pressure. Um, and if I can say, honestly, I, I, I think if I, if I look at my own life, um, I think some of it's pride induced. I think, hmm. I, you know, I, I don't think it's so much that we, well, we want something to put in the newsletter as we want to be recognized and seen. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm just speaking for myself. I'm not speaking That's for good anybody word. else. I think some That's of it's pride induced that like, well, I can't just say I've been working hard and I don't have any results because that reflects poorly on me. Hmm. Um, I, I think from my, my perspective, uh, I would always prefer the truth in a newsletter, in a, you know, in a communication or in an email to a, to an evangelistic truth. Wow. Um, and, and I, I think pastors will appreciate that. I, I can't speak for all pastors and certainly there'd be some pastors that would be turned off by the fact we have missionaries who are working for years and not seeing great results and not right. seeing great numbers. Uh, but the reality is I think part of the reason there's pastors that are turned off by that is we haven't given them the honest truth about how hard yeah. this soil is, Yeah, you know, and I think we need to begin to speak those very honest truths about, Hey, we're working in places where there aren't local believers, where there yeah. isn't a local church, where they're, you know, where, where it's dangerous to do what we yeah. do. And, and so I, I think, you know, there are ways to communicate that real truth hmm. without, you know, massaging it or, or, making it an evangelistic thing. And, yeah. and, and, and the problem with 
the problem with evangelistic truths or massage truths is that you got to top them the next time. And so, <laughs> you know, as we start massaging truths, you got to write another newsletter in three months, or you got to write another email, or you got to itinerate again in four years. And, and, and you got to remember where, what point you massaged it to the last time. So you can keep massaging it. And yeah. so, yeah. um, so I would just, I would just encourage missionaries to be as honest and as open as they can, because I think most pastors hearts yeah. would be, to want to know how difficult it is so that we can pray yeah. to want to know that, man, we're and and what better way to pray than to pray for the one. Like yeah. I, I can go through, I, I can pull up my phone right now and I can tell you that in, I have reminders on my phone to pray for missionaries and pray for, uh, pray for local pops and, and people of peace. And, 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 and so, man, what I love about that is I'm praying for 25 or 30 different mission fields every day. And I'm praying for local people by name. Hmm. You know, I'm praying for people that we're, you know, people of peace that we're, our teams are reaching out to. I'm praying for them by name. To me, that's powerful. I'm not praying yeah. some general prayer, you know, God be. save, you know, God save thousands of people on the island of Zanzibar. I'm praying specific prayers for people by name. And, yeah. and so I think most pastors, I, I can't promise that there's not going to be a pastor or two that aren't going to understand, but I think most pastors would prefer to know the hard truth and, and know how to pray and to be able to pray specifically for, for people. Um, because I really believe every day when I pray for those 25 or 30 people by name that I'm praying for apostle Paul's in their, yeah. you know, in their local context that they're going to be, it's not going to be our teams, but it's going to be those people that are going to, you know, build the church and build the kingdom there. So good word and uh challenging word. And, uh, the idea of massaging the truth, you're 100% right, because uh, if your story changes or you got to make it better the next time, you're, yeah, and four years between uh, itinerations is a long time. So to remember what you said and how you said it, but if you stick with the truth, uh, that does that does help you. And your point about pride and, um, and taking responsibility for that um, individually and saying, you know, this is, because uh, sometimes I think as missionaries, and, and I'll own it myself, sometimes we, we put the pressure on other people. But what I he heard you say is a lot of that's internal and a lot of that's sure. Aaron Santemeyer. And I need to own that sure. and bring that before God in that process. So I really, really do appreciate your wisdom. One of the most powerful, a lot of the stories, illustrations, and one of the parts that I really loved about the book, um, when you shared from 1 Peter 4, and how to find your joy um, when you're waiting or you're suffering. That, you know, that's, that, that could have been a book in and of itself also. And um, as we look at this, this God of the long view and that process, could you just unpack, could you just share a little bit more deeper about that? First Peter four and um, yeah. And how to find joy in this, in this waiting time. Yeah. Um, let me just read a couple of verses. First Peter four, uh, beginning verse 12, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to the world. Hmm. Um, there's something very powerful about that notion of not just us suffering with Christ, hmm. but Christ suffering with us. Hmm. That when we suffer, we are identifying with Christ, but he is actively in our suffering, identifying with us in his suffering, and that it all ultimately leads to uh, the, the, this revealing of joy. Yeah. And, and so 
it, it seems sort of odd. And, and out of all the chapters in the book, that's the chapter that I struggled the most with writing. Um, you know, in the eight days of writing the book, I think that chapter took me a day and a half because okay. it was, I really struggled because nobody wants to talk about suffering and nobody <laughs> wants, wants to talk about, you know, we're all okay with waiting as long as what we're waiting for is something cool. Yeah. Like we're all okay, well, okay with, with, with waiting for the delivery guy. If he's yeah. delivering a really nice, hot, fresh pizza, right. You know, we're, if he's delivering something painful, we're not as excited about the delivery, <laughs> right? But the reality is often in, in this walk, we are, we are waiting for suffering that there, mm. there is suffering coming. And, and so the only way you find joy in that is to know a, that you're not alone mm. and that, and that you're, that you're suffering with, with Jesus. There's this really cool story about William Tyndale who was translating uh, the Bible into English and he was living in hiding in Northern Europe because the, the particular vernacular that he was the language that he was translating into was strictly forbidden and um, officials in the church were even trying to stop him. And Tyndale was short of funds on his project and he was trying to sell copies of the early version to fund the rest of the project. And the, the King got wind of it. He was so mad that, you know, that, that it was happening, that he, um, he ordered up his minions to buy up all the copies and burn them. And so he bought up all the copies of the early translation of William Tyndale's Bible and burned them and thought that was the end of it. What he didn't realize was that Tyndale was using the money to finish the translation. <laughs> and so in thinking that he was snuffing out the gospel and he was stopping it, he was actually funding it. And Tyndale's translation, uh, most of you that are, you know, church history buffs will know Tyndale's translation became the, the foundation for the 1611 King James version of the Bible. Much of the English translation and Tyndale's translation just carried over almost word for word into the King James translation. And so I say that to say that even in suffering, there's a, there, there are often outcomes that, that God works for our good. You know, I mean, here Tyndall's pouring his life into this translation. He is, you know, he's he's risking his life. You know, he's mm. he's a wanted man. He's in hiding doing this translation, and it looks like, man, that's awful. You know, here the yeah. work of his life is burned up, but the the revenue created from the king trying to destroy all those <laughs> copies and burn, you know, burn those copies ends up funding the project and and really you know, several generations later, giving us the the access to the word of God that we have today and somebody had to be willing to suffer for it. And Absolutely. so um, that's a part of this concept of the God of the long view is that my suffering may not always result in immediate results for me. Hmm. Um, but ultimately, my suffering never goes to waste in the kingdom and that hmm. God may use my toil and my labor and my sweat to, to do something a generation from now or two generations from now wow. or 200 years from now. And uh, I, I share that quote in, uh, in, in the book, Oswald Chambers, probably my favorite quote in the entire book is Oswald Chambers basically said he's come to the conclusion um, that his life may be the answer to someone else's prayer prayed centuries ago. Wow. And, and so if we believe that we like to yeah. believe that about us, right? When we go <laughs> to a place where, where the gospel's never gone. We're like, I'm the answer to someone's prayer prayed hun hundreds of years ago. That's great. What we don't like to do is believe that, we might be praying yeah, a prayer that a someone word. else will be the answer to 200 years from now. Yeah. And, and, and it works both ways. If that's, if that's true, then it works yeah. both ways. And so uh, when we're suffering, it's, it's, 
it is difficult to find that joy. You know, it's, yeah. it's difficult to find that joy, but I think again, it goes back to perspective and trusting the architect and trusting that God's got a plan and trusting that even when it looks like we're defeated or our ministries or our lives are, are, are ending in failure or at any stopping off point, it looks like we're a failure trusting that when we are suffering with Christ, that suffering will never go to waste, that there will always be some, there'll always be some seed for the kingdom in that um, as long as we're obedient. Good word. Good word. Could you just read, you said it, there's a difference between Christ suffering with us. Could you just, unpack, just revisit that? This one more, the quote you said, there, there's a difference between when Jesus suffering with us or us suffering with Jesus. Is that, could, could you say that one more time? Yeah, well, I think I think we talk a lot about us suffering with Christ, connecting our suffering with with Christ. But I yes. I, I think it's a circular thing. I, I really think that when we suffer, that it's not just that we are identifying with Christ in our suffering. That's what we think. Well, Jesus died on the cross, so when I suffer, it's connected to the cross. My suffering is connected to that. But I really think there's something in the supernatural that when we suffer, Christ is suffering with us. And I don't know if that makes sense or not, no, but it's like, it, you know, it that, does. that there is, there's something powerful in that moment that when we suffer, it's not just us connecting back to the suffering of Christ, but that Christ is actively with us in our suffering. And, and, um, you know, I don't, I don't even really know a, a, a good way to illustrate that because I think it's a supernatural concept, yeah. but you know, there's something about presence hmm. and, and, you know, when, um, I have a, I have a family who's, who's gone through cancer in our church recently and, um, someone else who survived cancer a few years ago, just made a simple decision that they were going to go over. They didn't, they didn't have words of wisdom. They didn't have any, they just started one Sunday walking over and sitting next to this family in church. Hmm. And they never said anything. They never laid hands on them and prayed for them. But it was like everybody in the church watched this one family go through wow. cancer and now there's this conscious decision that this person who survived has gone through that suffering is now just sitting with this other family that's actively going through it. And it's been powerful to watch just the power of presence. Yeah, it's good. That the, someone going through something is being accompanied by someone who's been down that road, been there hmm. before. And so I think for me, that's the beauty of saying when I suffer, it's not just me suffering with Jesus and identifying in some abstract way with his suffering on the cross, because I'm pretty sure no one listening to this podcast has ever been crucified. Right. So there's not like a direct connection to our, from our suffering to Christ, because we're not being crucified. Right. Um, but there is this, there is this real connection that in our suffering, when we suffer for the kingdom, when we suffer for Christ, when we suffer for the cause of Christ, that Christ actively identifies with us That's in that word, suffering. Yeah. So it is, we, he is present in that suffering, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. I, I just wanted to revisit it because I think it's a very powerful thought. And, um, and as you said, it's not, it's more than a thought concept, uh, and how supernatural it is. And I, it really spoke to me in the moment when you shared it. And, um, I just wanted to revisit it again, just, uh, yeah. just in case somebody was running and, and, uh, they did, they missed it the <laughs> first time I wanted to, to hit it again. So sure. just one more, one more question for you, pastor David, you know, we we're living in a, in a, in a day that sometimes good news seems to be hard to find, uh, or it seems, or shoved back to the back of the line as we, uh, focus on some of the, the, the negative or the things that are going on, but you, 
you you have the benefit. You you travel widely. Um, you are in contact um, with a lot of you shared a lot of missionary workers around the world. And as you look across um, the landscape of missions and the church, are there a few things that you're excited about, or may, or, or one or two things that you're excited about, or some good news that you're seeing as you look across the landscape? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of good news, and you know, I, I just. I'll just share what's encouraged me as I look at the landscape of missions today and, and just in, in travels and in communication and in talking with friends, I think the, our missionary body has never been thinking more strategically than they are at this moment. I mm. think that one of the things that the pandemic has maybe caused is we've all had a lot of time on our hands. <laughs> and, and so a lot of people have sat around and they've strategized and they've thought and they've prayed. And so I think from this has, it has emerged some really, really powerful strategic ideas. And, and I see people with, uh, with some strategic plans across continents, across, across the world that I, I really, I think it's caused us to be laser focused hmm. um, on on what God's called us to do, and and we have so many, um, so many very specialized people on the field right now that God is equipped for. I, I really believe for such a time as this, and and so I'm just really encouraged with the um, the aptitude of our of our missionaries, the hmm. level of preparedness and strategic thinking. And, and I, I just, I've never been more impressed with our, with our missionary body worldwide. I mean that, I mean, I just like, I am so impressed with the people that God is calling around the world and they challenge me and inspire me. And I, I can't help, but think that, that God is preparing us for something really, really big. Now to say that it may happen over the next five decades, right. I, you know, but, but I, but I believe that God really is starting to do some incredible things. And one of the things that's encouraging to me is, is I've been in this deal long enough that I've, you know, I've walked with some missionaries who've been in places for six, seven, eight, nine years and not seen a single convert, not, mm. not been able to dunk a single, you know, baptism. And, and I can look in pockets around the world. I can think of five or six of those just off the top of my head where I personally know missionaries who've been working for six, seven, eight years without any significant headway that in the last two years, year and a half, that God is just pouring out his spirit and they're beginning to see, you know, one, two, five, yeah. six, you know, and, and I, you know, I think, of, I think about, for example, the Somali people, you know, you, you're in a town where there's a significant Somali population and, you know, just think about the number of Somalis that I know of that have been baptized in the last two years. Hmm. And it's not a number that's going to impress a lot of American pastors. You know, hmm. it's six, eight, 10, 15. Right. But in terms of this is the other thing about perspective. <laughs> when we look at things contextually and we understand what six Somali baptisms means, for yeah, example, for sure, and we place it, we overlay it against like nothing against Brazil, but the Brazilian church, which is right. massive and, you know, grow, has grown by leaps and bounds over the last couple of decades. Six Somali baptisms is like, you know, literally, I mean, statistically, it's like 200,000 Brazilians being baptized yeah. in six months. Yeah. I mean, it's a massive number. And so I'm super encouraged by that, partially because I have the perspective and the context yeah. to understand where six baptisms might just not be a blip on the radar for a lot of people. 
it's huge. And we're yeah. seeing that in several places around the world where people have, have poured out their lives for, for years. And now they're just now either they are, or the next generation of missionary workers are beginning to see, uh, are beginning to see those, those benefits. And I tell the story in the book of uh, a place in China where a French missionary went, you know, 168 years ago and planted coffee plants. And I won't retell the whole story, but our missionary team in that town is beginning to see fruit that, that missionary Pere Charles Renault died without a single convert. I can't read his mind, but probably died feeling like a failure. And here, you know, a century and a half later, our team members are starting to see local indigenous believers amongst the same people group that that guy went to reach, you know, and it's a couple, it's not a huge number, but in, in context, it's huge. It's huge. And I really believe that God is beginning to, as we've been beating on this soil and beating on this soil, the image that I have in my mind is, is that, you know, there's a wall that we are, you know, we're taking sledgehammers at and, and we've been, you know, breaking dust off of it and breaking mortar out of the cracks and and I can I can see I think from from my perspective thousands of miles away that there are a lot of places where we're like one sledgehammer whack of breaking through the wall. Hmm. Hmm. And my biggest fear as a pastor, my biggest challenge as a pastor is I want to undergird our missionaries and pray for our missionaries because I don't want them to walk away one sledgehammer swing away from yeah. breaking through. Yeah. And I really think that there are a lot of places in the world where we're that close to beginning to break through because we've been knocking on that wall for a long time. And, yeah. and, and I just, in the spirit realm, I can just kind of see, man, we're so close to breaking through. Yeah. And I just don't want our missionaries to walk away um, when they're so close. Cause here's, what's going to happen. God's going to send somebody else along and their first swing, they're going to break through the wall because you've been doing all, all the hard work. Yeah. And I don't want you to walk away and have someone else see the other side of that wall. I want yeah. you to keep knocking at that wall. I want you to keep getting up every day and pushing forward because I just believe there's going to be breakthrough. I really do. Yeah. I believe that with all my heart because I'm starting to see it around the world in pockets. And, and I just, and I know other missionaries that haven't seen those breakthroughs yet, but I've been walking that same journey with them for the last half a dozen years or a decade. And, and now I just really believe that, that God's going to begin to break through in those places. Good word. Good word. Pastor David, I really appreciate you taking your time with us today on the podcast. Could you, we normally end the podcast in prayer and um, will you just pray for those listening in specifically the missionaries around the world and um, yeah, whatever the way the, the spirit directs you just pray, pray for us today. Sure. Father, I thank you. I thank you for my missionary friends all around the world that are doing the difficult work that are cutting on marble and, many days, not feeling like they're making much progress. I thank you. I thank you, God, that you called me to a pretty easy place and that I have a pretty easy part to play in in giving money and praying and supporting the kingdom work around the world. I thank you today for my friends who are doing the hard stuff. And I pray, God, that you would cause them in this moment to get a little bit of perspective to turn their eyes away from the difficult soil that they're that they're toiling in, the the, the difficult wall that they're knocking against, and 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 to cause them to turn their eyes up toward you for just a minute and remember that you 
are the architect of a beautiful kingdom and you are building something beautiful around this world and they get to be a part of it. And I just pray, God, that you would encourage them today with that word, that you would challenge them to keep going, to not give up, to not walk away when they're so close to breakthrough. I pray for my missionary friends, God, that you would speak to their hearts, encourage their hearts today, and God, that they would know that it's not just me, that there are tens of thousands of pastors and believers in the States and they're supporting churches that are not just giving their money, but that are laying it on the line for them in prayer every day and believing for breakthrough. And God, I thank you that you give us something worth working for and worth waiting for. And so God, I pray as you begin to work out your plan in our lives, as you begin to remind us that as, as Cardinal Dearden's prayer says, we are ministers, not messiahs. We are workers, not master builders. So I pray God that you would remind us of our role, that we are not messiahs. We are just, we, we are just ministers. And so Lord, you do your work, you build your kingdom, and we'll keep sawing on this marble. We'll keep doing what you have called us to do. I pray your blessing upon every missionary within the sound of my voice today. In Jesus' name.